0: heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you've been paying any attention to the news lately, uh, you'll know that NASA just landed their Perseverance rover on Mars last week, and there's high-res pictures and videos. It's pretty cool, although, to be honest, it just sort of looks like Nevada. But I'm no conspiracy theorist, so this latest mission to Mars carries a price tag of over $2.9 billion, all to take a few pictures of red dirt, scoop up a few samples, and get this, hold on to them for future missions. The rover's going to drive around like Disney Pixar's WALL-E and collect all these little rock samples and dirt samples in tubes and then pile them in a neat little pile and say, hey, they're here. We have to pay another $3 billion for another five-year mission to go and just collect the samples that this one mission is just putting in a neat pile. And all of this works so that the scientists can look at it and go, yep, that's red dirt. Uh, dirt. <laughs> there's that there's there's more of a reason they're doing it than that but it seems like a whole lot of expenditure a whole lot of time a whole lot of effort a whole lot of dedication for not very much payoff why are they doing it well NASA is seeking to answer the W questions who are we what are we why were we made where are we in time and space why do we exist These are all questions about our identity. And NASA is not alone in this. Most human pursuits, um, even if they have a secondary goal of some other achievement, they have this primary unified goal of discovering our identity. Science, religion, philosophy, sociology, psychology, astronomy. I mean, almost anything you can get a degree in in college. At some level, the end goal of that thing is to answer those W questions and finally find out what our identity is. Is. They're all different fields, but they really just have the same goal and moving from big uh, Corporations and big degrees and all of that down to just the personal level. We also have the self-help industry Which is everything from books on how to know yourself better love yourself better uh, mental health apps enneagrams personal life coaches personality tests this is a 13 billion dollar industry annually, and it's growing rapidly And yet somehow, despite all of this dedication, all of this time spent, all of this money spent, and the fact that we have the entirety of the history of human knowledge accessible in our pocket every single day, somehow, we are still the most lonely, stressed out, overworked, overtired, overmedicated, suicidal people possibly in the history of the world. So apparently, information is not helping. What's the problem then? The problem is, those W questions that we keep asking, who, what, when, where, why, are missing one critical W word. Whose. Biblically, our identity is not found in the other W questions, in who we are, but in whose we are. So let's go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Greg already read it, but I'm going to read it again. And listen, I'm going to point them out. Listen for all the identity statements in here. These four verses are chock full of them. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Identity. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Old identity. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. Identity. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, identity. And if children, then heirs, identity. Heirs of God, sub-identity, and co-heirs with Christ, sub-identity. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. If you'll notice, every one of these identity statements is not expressed in any detail about yourself. Or your person, your personality, your likes or dislikes. Any tidbit about you. All of these identity statements are stated in a sense of ownership. No longer a slave to fear, but an adopted son. The spirit of adoption. Children of God, heirs. All of these are someone or something being over you. And you being subject to and receiving from that thing. We see the same parent-child language all over Scripture. Actually, we're going to flip to a few places real quick. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So if you're spiritually dead, the Bible considers you a son of disobedience, or a child of wrath. But if you're spiritually alive, what does Romans say? You are an adopted son of God. We are children of God, heirs of God. We also see this parental language all over the Gospels, all over Jesus' teaching. One particular place that it's really condensed uh, is John chapter 8. I'm going to read a bit of a long section here, but it's got so much in there. And honestly, we could do an entire sermon series on the parent-child relationship and dynamic in just this passage alone. But on the screens, if you want to look up there, you can read in your own copy as well, but I've had Laura underline all of the times that it says my father, your father, our father, where there's a fatherhood type statement, so you can see how often it happens. So John 8, verse 31. We're going to go to verse 47. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, that is, the Pharisees, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone, false, Egypt. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So there we have slave versus son, not slave versus free, slave versus son. We'll get to that. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus is saying, okay, you claim your father is Abraham, but your actions are saying your father is somebody different. The Pharisees answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I am not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. There it is. Ouch. And your will is to do your father's desires. of God or of the devil. There's no third option. There's no alternative. Either God is your father or the father of lies is your father. Jesus is making it clear that the Pharisees' attitude and actions toward Jesus reveal that who they claim as their father is not actually who their father really is. They're not who they claim to be. Children of Abraham, therefore God's chosen people, therefore children of God. The Pharisees extrapolated their identity from themselves, from the situational things about them. Uh, we're blood descendants of Abraham. We follow the law of Moses. We live in the promised land. These are all situational facts, and it's therefore their identity. So they think, I've been born as a Jew to Jewish parents, therefore automatically I am a Jew, and therefore I am automatically a child of God. Jesus is telling the Pharisees in John 8, among many other things, that it's not their blood lineage Or where they call home, or their adherence to the law that defines them. It's who their father is, whose they are, not who they are. And we still do what the Pharisees did today. I mean, science, anthropology, psychology, physiology, all these different studies. They're looking at trying to find the myriad of different identities that they claim that we have based on our sexual preference, our upbringing, our ethnicity, our opportunity, our jobs, our parents, our family tree, all sorts of different influences that change how we are and define who we are. And I'm not trying to downplay these things. It's good to study these things and know these things because it is how you start to know the nuances of who a person is. It's good to be aware of those And we do this every day. I'm not even saying this is a bad thing. What's the first question you ask somebody when you meet someone new? Generally, it's not some really massive identity question. It's, you know, what do you do for a living? Are you married? How many kids do you have? Where did you grow up? How many languages do you speak? What do you like to do on the weekend? What are your hobbies and your interests? We're building a framework for knowing the identity and relating to these people based on just the circumstantial facts and evidences that we can gather about them. And there's nothing wrong about that. But as a Christian, have you ever met somebody and learned that they're also a Christian? And there's this sense of connection that just changes. There's a sense of identity that just changes when you discover that. Um, a couple months ago, I was having our old washer and dryer get picked up by a guy. It's just a local guy. It's a small business. And I was helping him load them, the washer and dryer up onto his trailer. And we got to talking. Um, you know, just about our family and what we do for a living and all that. And I noticed he had this t-shirt that was so cool. It was this, it was Jesus on a cross and the big snake biting his heel and then like lightning bolts coming down and had proto Gileon across it, this big like nerdy theological t-shirt. And I'm like, that is so cool. Where did you get that? And, and I, you know, I told him I'm a pastor and he says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to a church in Ashland and I love, you know, studying theology and nerd out on all this stuff and take all kinds of classes. And there was just this this moment as soon as that happened where there was just like this stress and this tension that just kind of fell off of me i'm kind of an introvert anyway so it's more nerve-wracking for me to meet somebody new but there was just this this instant change like instantly i knew him so much better and it wasn't because of circumstantial facts it wasn't because i knew how many kids he had or how long he's been married or what he likes to do on the weekend He identified as a child of God, and immediately I know about this guy's heart and this guy's passion. And even if there are low-lying theological differences, there probably are. We have the same father. This guy went from being a stranger, a nice man, an acquaintance, to being a brother who shares the same father. I bring this up because that's the power of finding your identity in something beyond yourself, whose you are instead of, who you are. There's a whole new level of knowing that happens instantaneously, particularly for Christians, when you find out whose somebody is. If you're interested, I titled my message, it'll be on the little note thing in the middle of your uh, worship folder, there's no I in identity. And I, I know, there's two eyes in identity, it's kind of tongue in cheek. And it's not to say that our interests and our preferences and the things about us that make me, me, don't matter. But it's to emphasize that going above yourself to whose you are is a greater revelation of your identity. But we'll dive deeper into that in a minute. Secondly, I want to bring up another key reason why it's really important that we know whose we are more than who we are. Because there's this common misconception that we see in the Christian church, and it's nothing new, there's waves of it, it comes and goes. But recently, a large wave of it, specifically as it relates to how we interact with the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit actually does in us, um, regarding to what freedom in Christ actually means. There's this great quote from the first Avengers movie, uh, Loki, one of the bad guys, if you haven't seen it, he corrals this large group of people into this town square in a town in Germany, and he commands them to kneel before him, and then he gives this little speech I'll read a little portion of it. It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You are made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. I actually love that quote because there is some actual real truth in what he's saying. We're not the complete independent, free-thinking Individuals that we like to think we are, especially as modern Westerners, especially as Southern Oregonians. We live within the context of boundaries, rules, and authority structures. I mean, you can't drive down the freeway at 100 miles an hour or not pay your taxes without the potential for consequence. Why has a 100% lawless anarchy? never worked? Why is there always government? I mean, even in completely isolated tribes, people who have had no exposure to Western civilization, no teaching on government, no teaching on authority structures or being a good leader, no self-help, 12 steps to get everyone to do what you want to do. Even when you go into those, they have tribal leaderships. They have a head that everybody looks to. They have established authority structures. And then even in our modern technological advancement society and science in 2020 and scientists that are telling us that we've moved beyond the need for religion because we have information now, still today, 93% of the world's population adhere to and follow some religion. 93%. Even with all the information we have and the people telling us that we are post-religion and it's all about facts and truth now. We Were made to worship. I might not go so far as to say, as Loki did, that we were made to be ruled, per se. But humans do need boundaries. We need structures. We need to know where the limits are. And as an aside regarding that last line, in the end you will always kneel, what does Paul say in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, regarding the end times? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Maybe Loki has a point. He may not be biblical, but maybe he has a point. Biblically, we are always children. Either children of wrath, children of slavery, children of the devil, or children of God. And all the passages we looked at, it's always using the same language, that we are children. It's what type of child you are. It's whose father you have, not whether you're slave or free. And that is good language to use as well, but maybe not in the completely free sense that we like to think about that as modern Western Americans. And if you ever raised kids, you know that children operate better when there are boundaries. A lot of times when they're acting out, it's they're trying to find where the limit is. Because when they know where the limit is, they know where right and wrong is, they're more comfortable, they're safer, they feel like they can actually be free to be themselves within this context when they know where the boundary is. Now, sometimes they're acting out because they're little punks who are also fallen and broken, but there is that as well. Let's give that to them, that sometimes they're testing the boundaries because they know where the safety Is And and we do that as well. Now that's not to say that we're not free, mature adults who have the ability to please Christ. Certainly we do. I'm not saying we're always infants that need milk, per se. But it's what that freedom actually means. When Christ says we are free, when Paul says we are free, it's what that actually means and what we're able to now do with that freedom that seems to draw some confusion in the church and has for many, many, many hundreds of years. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So you went from being not your own, owned like a slave, to fear and to death, to the devil, the father of lies, to being freed from fear and death, from the slavery of what that is, by being purchased by Christ on the cross. It's not that Jesus came and unhooked your leash and said, go lassie, and now you're just free to run out in the field and do whatever the heck you want. You were purchased from a slaveholder and are now called a son of God. Galatians 5 gives us a fantastic picture of this. We're going to spend most of the rest of the time today in Galatians 5 because it really is like a footnote an expanded definition of of Romans 8, 14 to 17. So Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So we are free. Don't hear me belittling that. We are absolutely free in Christ. But that freedom is free to not have to submit to a yoke of slavery. That wasn't an option when you were a child of wrath. There was only submission to slavery. There is no free will to choose. The freedom in Christ is choosing to not have to submit to that fear, to have the option to say no. And then skip over to verse uh, 13, a little bit further down. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The flesh still calls out to be satisfied, our desires are still strong. Every one of you Christians knows that sin temptation doesn't just go away the instant you become. A Christian. But we are no longer under forceful compulsion to have to say yes, to have to satisfy the flesh and its desires and its compulsions. We have the freedom to say no to serving ourselves, which means saying yes to God and serving others. That's the other option. It's serving yourself or serving others. Because if we think about Western freedom, oftentimes it's just serving yourself in a white picket fence nice way that is all you know, accept it and smile, and oh, that, that's that's yeah, that's the American dream. The American dream is just a very nice, socially accepted serving of your own flesh. It's not freedom. So yes, we are free in Christ, but we're not fatherless, independent adults with no authority over us. We don't have infinite freedom with no boundaries. Christian freedom means having a choice when there was no choice before as a caveat, yeah, I know we have non-Christians who do good too. In fact, some of the largest nonprofit organizations in the world are, owned by, are run by non-Christians. What is that? A broken clock is right twice a day. That's the common grace of God. That's the Imago Dei eking out of people. It's not freedom, though. That's a glimpse of the goodness of God that keeps this entire world from absolutely spiraling out of control into complete chaos and complete destruction, which is what would happen if there was no image of God and no common grace. But it's not freedom. It's not freedom to willingly say no to the flesh. As Christians, God is our Father. We are His children, and we need to submit and obey in freedom, of course, and joy. Absolutely, it is a good Father we are under. But act as children under a loving parent, nonetheless. And it's how this plays out that brings me to the second point. It's more important to know whose you are than who you are. And whose you are determines who you are, determines what you do. So let's go back to our passage in Romans. Verse 14 starts out with this incredibly vague um, but very important statement. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay? So that also means that if I claim to be a son or daughter of God, then therefore I should be led by the Spirit. It was a very, very large, very vague question, and it seems very important to answer. And in fact, there's a lot of different denominations that exist today among Christian churches because of the varied answers to this question what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? So this brings up two primary questions. The first one is, well, what does that actually look like? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, I'll give you an example of what it's not. So a pastor friend of mine was telling me about a lady in his congregation a while back who was trying so hard to follow the Spirit moment by moment, day by day. Really, it was in her heart to do exactly what this verse is talking about, be led by the Spirit. So she would wake up in the morning, and she'd sit on the edge of her bed, and she'd go, Lord, should I put on pants today? She'd wait. Once she felt like she finally heard, yeah, put on pants. She'd put her pants on. Lord, do I put on a shirt today? She'd wait. Okay, I should put on a shirt today. On it goes, every article of clothing until she was fully dressed. She said sometimes it took her 45 minutes to get dressed in the morning. That's not what Paul is talking about. When he says, be led by the Spirit. Bless her heart, as they would say in the South. <laughs> I'm sure the Lord loved her, her discipline, her determination. But I'm pretty sure, without looking at Scripture, that anything the Spirit's going to have you do today, probably you need to have clothes on to do. I'm just going to go out on a limb. Most likely, pretty much anything the Spirit says do, it's kind of obvious you should probably have some clothes on. And it's easy to laugh and point out of something that seems obviously ridiculous. We do this too, but maybe not in ways that are so obvious. But what does it then mean? It's easy to say what it's not. What, what is it then? That's the second question. Because if Paul instructs us to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, if he needs to say that, if he needs to have that verse in the Bible... Well, that obviously means there must be an alternative, that there must be an option for us to not be led by the Spirit, for us to not walk in the Spirit. So how do we watch out for that? Well, back to Galatians 5. Starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So here's that juxtaposition again. Spirit of slavery versus adoption of sons. Slavery versus sonship. Slavery versus freedom. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here's a long laundry list of evidence that you are not a son, that you are under the slavery of fear. And notice that inheritance language, that adoption language that's in here at the end of verse 21. I warned you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's, I think, at least three of the identity statements in the Romans passage? An heir. An heir of God co-heirs with Christ. That's inheritance language. There's something that is coming to us because of our identity. But if we do these things, if we see this list of things in our life, Paul says, I warned you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which means that if you're not inheriting the kingdom of God, you're not an heir. Which means if you're not an heir, you're not a son. And if you're not a son, you have not been adopted. And if you're not adopted, that means you are a slavery, in slavery to fear. We move on, verse 22. the spirit there's that phrase again we see in romans walking in step with the spirit so now we know what to look for we have evidences of what it looks like to be a slave to fear and what it looks like to be an adopted son to walk in step with the spirit and this evidence this fruit is why my second main point is that cascading phrase whose you are determines who you are determines what you do here's a little diagram i can put up um, of a funnel that shows you what i'm talking about So you've got who's on top, and then who is the funnel itself, and then what is at the bottom. So the way God created us is the funnel. What is at top, the who's, is what gets poured in. And the funnel changes and shapes based on the details of our personality and things that make us different, and changes a little bit what comes out at the bottom. But it's more importantly, what is actually at the top and feeding in to the funnel, So, for instance, God has given us all, all of his mercy, all of his grace, the fullness of his Holy Spirit to all believers. And let me be very clear on that, because that is not universally believed among the church. You have the whole Holy Spirit right now if you are a believer, if you are a child of God. There's no part of the Holy Spirit. You're not waiting for a second outpouring. You're not waiting for another dose of the Holy Spirit. You're not waiting for some new revelation of the Spirit. We're not waiting for Him to fall down upon us and give us a greater revelation than we already have in Scripture. We have the entire Holy Spirit. You will never have more of the Spirit inside you than you already do right now. We will be face-to-face with God one day. In his presence, sure. But we're not going to ever have more of the Spirit than you have right now if you are a son or daughter of God. However, the specific way God created each of you does change what comes out at the bottom. So if God gifted you with exceptional administrative skills, or design skills, or parenting skills, uh, art, or music, whatever it happens to be the little nuances of the ways he's created though you, those are going to filter what, comes, what gets poured in and it's going to look a little different. You're going to be amazing at hosting people or you're going to be amazing at leading worship or you're going to be amazing at designing architectural buildings and taking the raw materials of the earth and, and making something beautiful out of them, fulfilling that Genesis commandment. So the way that you live out the Christian life is going to look different depending on a little bit the way the funnel is, the way you are. But I would argue it's going to depend a whole lot more on what's being poured in at the top. The problem I was addressing earlier in the message about identity not being primarily about who you are, but whose you are, is that science, anthropology, physiology, astronomy, all these studies, all these fields, they all try to define who you are by looking at you. They look at the funnel. They want to look at the funnel and determine why is the funnel the way it is? The shape, the size, the specifics. Why do you take the actions? They look at the what's. What are the what's that came out? Well, that has to all be about the funnel. And so they analyze the funnel. Weak- weaknesses, strengths, preferences. And again, the problem is they don't look farther far enough up. They try to answer the why the funnel the way it is as if the funnel is the Defining factor of what comes out when in reality the funnel shape and size does not matter as much as we think it does in terms of core identity If you pour lies and fear and hatred and sin in the top that slavery of fear stuff What comes out the bottom is simply varied forms of that corruption whether alcoholism murder abuse sexual sin greed theft those are all just works of the flesh like we listed in uh, Galatians 5, 19 and 20, those are simply flavors of the same source. Those are simply nuances, slight changes in what's being poured in the top. Likewise, the list of fruits of the Spirit, a couple verses later in Galatians 5, are flavors of God's goodness and his love poured into us, filtered by the details of how he made us to be, but primarily because of what's being poured in. The funnel cannot claim very much Um, authority or effort in what it filters out and what actually comes out the bottom. So really walking in step with the spirit is pretty simple. What does Romans call that spirit? Back in verse 15, the spirit of adoption as sons. So walking in step with the spirit is simply acting like a son or a daughter of God using the freedom that we've been given to now choose to say no to my passions and desires, like Galatians 5.24 says. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice I said it was simple. I did not say it was easy. In fact, the rest of Romans is working out the details of what it actually means to accomplish that. It's not a simple task. It is a simple task. It's not an easy task. And this funnel that I use as a diagram, it's not something you have to work at. It's not something you have to strive for. It's it's an example, an image, if you will, of, of just what is. What is poured into you, whose you are, will determine what fruit comes out, more so than how the fruit happens to be shaped or colored. If you'll notice, Paul also doesn't say, breathe and step with the Spirit, or let your heart beat and step with the Spirit, as if it's some involuntary thing that we just let happen. He says, walk in the Spirit, an action you have to intentionally take. Now, it's not striving. Walking isn't difficult for most of us, but it is an action you have to take. You don't involuntarily walk. So we act, and we trust that the fruit of your action is the Lord's will because of what He has poured into the top. Now, I know we live in this super awkward now and not yet, this place between Christ's resurrection and Christ's second coming. We are heirs who have not fully received the full thing promised to us. Yes, we have the whole Holy Spirit, but we don't have resurrected bodies. They're all still breaking down and in various forms of decay. We all still have uh, nagging, hungry flesh that is completely insatiable. The more you feed it, the hungrier it gets. But we are children of God. Verse 16 of Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our children, uh, sorry, with our spirit, that we are children of God. He puts that in there because there are days we don't look like, or feel like, or act like, or sound like the children of God. And that's why we have the Spirit, to be reminded that we are the children of God, to be able to, to have the choice to act like children of God. Walking in step with the Spirit simply means reminding ourselves that we have the creator and the sustainer of the universe inside of us, nudging us towards holding us, reminding us of the gospel truths, reminding us of everything that Jesus said, empowering us to say no to the flesh and yes to God by serving others. And then Paul ends this fantastic little section on our identity with this terrifying little caveat in verse 17. We are heirs provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. That reads like the fine print of a side effects of a drug that is supposed to fix an ailment and the side effects are worse than the ailment itself. I'm sorry, what Paul? All this stuff that you promised, it's great about who I am provided I suffer? Well, Greg is going to cover a lot more of that next week. Uh, The passage continues on more of the details. I'm not dodging it. Don't worry. I just don't have time. I'm already running behind. Um, And we also, we did a whole panel discussion, if you remember, back in the fall on suffering, where we had four people up here, and we did a big discussion on that. You can find that online if you want to go through some of the details of suffering. But I do want to just address something really briefly, that there's a line we need to walk here regarding suffering. Because if your life is wonderful, and everything is going great, and God is just blessing your socks off, be grateful. I know it's something I've struggled with. I, I... was saved at the age of two and a half. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. I've never been abused. I've never been without food or water. I've, I've just, life has been, I've never lost anyone close to me. Like all of my loved ones are still alive. It's just, I have not experienced a lot of what many people would call suffering. And I would feel bad about that. Like, do I not have an inheritance? Am I not a child of God because I haven't really suffered in comparison to other people? Yeah, that's the problem. In comparison. <laughs> But we also need to remember that when you walk in step with the Spirit, when this is your identity, you will suffer. It's guaranteed. Crucifying the flesh and its desires is suffering. Every time you say no to a sin you want to commit, that's you suffer because your flesh doesn't get satisfied. Every time you serve someone else with your time or your money or your means, as opposed to serving yourself, you suffer because you don't get that thing or that time that you want. You deserve that you owe yourself, as the world would say. Don't discount that. Yes, we may not be physically suffering like our brothers and sisters in other places all over the world, but as privileged Westerners, we, pray, we face this unique kind of suffering to have so many millions of opportunities to satisfy the flesh thrown in our faces every minute of every day, every billboard, every advertisement, every thing on the shelf in every store. And there's going to be almost no consequence, really, at least so it seems. It's, it's the American dream to satisfy the desires of your flesh. Everyone's going to give you a pat on the back. You're going to get awards for satisfying the desires of your flesh. So saying no to limitless and consequence-free self-indulgence can be every bit as painful as physical suffering. I'm not discounting actual physical suffering, but let's not play the comparison game. Let's be honest about the reality of daily suffering. And for those of you who are well acquainted with suffering take heart because your suffering is not just the product of a broken world. I know we say that a lot as pastors. Oh, the world's broken, that's why you're experiencing suffering. Sometimes that just that doesn't feel like enough. Because it's not. It's not the full answer. Suffering is preparing you to receive the full glory of Christ, the full glory that Christ receives upon his return. When we receive the full payment of our inheritance, there's a level of suffering we go through simply because of whose we are. Let's be aware of that. Let's not shortchange ourselves on that. But the bottom line is this that we are heirs with Christ, not because of us, not because of the funnel or its particulars, our personality, our potential, our education, our ethnicity, our church attendance, our tithing, our good works. We are heirs. We are children of God because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but inherit eternal life. And those who believe are adopted and take God as their father, moving from child of fear and slavery to son or daughter of a good God. A few quick takeaways to wrap up. Walking with, in step with the Spirit is a balance. It's a dance of you choosing to respond to the Spirit's leading and then trusting that the working out of the fruit of your choice to act is done by the Spirit and the will of God. So what's one thing you can do this week, today, tomorrow, in your rhythms, in your daily life? Not making a massive, drastic change, just taking a chance to say yes to one small thing. Say it, pray for an extra 10 minutes in the morning. Witness to a neighbor. Maybe fast from something that's taking too much of your time or attention. It's Lent right now. I know Baptists don't generally do Lent, but it is Lent right now. Specifically saying no to something to remind ourselves what actually sustains our life. What is the Lord prompting on your heart to do? Small things, not massive decisions. Try saying yes to that thing. Ultimately, you're just saying yes to who you are. A child of God. You're just saying, yes, I'm going to operate as if you are my father which is true. We also don't give the Spirit enough credit. We often only think about Spirit-led when big decisions come up in our life. Who am I going to marry? What job am I going to take? What what school am I going to go to? These big, massive, fork-in-the-road decisions that, that alter the entire course of our life. We act like the Holy Spirit is a personal life coach that we call up when the big stuff happens. But otherwise, we'll just figure it out on our own. Every time an opportunity to sin comes up and you say no... That's the Spirit. That's not you. You're working with the Spirit, but even the fact that there's an opportunity to say no is the Spirit. Every time there's an opportunity to bless somebody with what you've been given, to serve somebody, that's the Spirit enabling you to be able to serve and bless that person and please God. And we need to recognize just how often that happens. Constantly, I would argue. Paul said, in step with the spirit, not massive leaps and strides with the spirit, jumping off a cliff with the spirit. You guys take like 10, 15, 20,000 steps a day. Paul says every single one of those should be with the spirit. That doesn't mean he doesn't help us in the big things, but I would argue it's way more about the small things, the daily little decisions, choosing to listen to the spirit and say yes to that prompting, that urging that you feel. And as you do that, you'll become more sensitive. Conversely, if you say no to that, you quench the spirit, you become less sensitive. You don't have less of the spirit, you become less sensitive. Your ears stop listening to the voice of the spirit. So maybe you need to repent this morning. Maybe you've been satisfying the desires of the flesh. Living like the top of your funnel is a spirit of slavery. Not that the top of your funnel... Is adoption as sons and daughters of God. And finally, take heart in the midst of suffering and difficulty. You are adopted sons and daughters. In the Gospels, Jesus calls God Father. So many times you can barely even count. In John alone, the book of John, over 150 times Jesus calls God Father. And what does Romans 8, 8.15 say about us? Spirit of adoption as sons. 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, exactly like Jesus did in all of his prayers all throughout the Gospels. The spirit enables us to do the same thing, to claim God as our father, to cry out to him in a time of need, to cry out to him on a daily basis just like Jesus did. So find hope in the reality that Christ has risen from the grave and therefore we are alive with him, co-heirs with him. And that one day soon we will be fully glorified receiving the full payment of our inheritance when he returns.